So chapter 24, verse 1, starts with this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken." Obviously, verses 1 through 4 and verse 5 are completely different. One's like the, the worst-case scenario, and the other one's like the best-case scenario, how you started out, so you avoid. If you do verse 5 properly, it'll set you up that you never see verses 1 through 4 in this text. Now, this passage, of course, is quoted by the religious leaders in the New Testament to Jesus, trying to ensnare him on the subject of divorce. And so what's wonderful for us, as has happened so many times in Deuteronomy, we have New Testament understanding and revelation for this text to help us understand it. So it is the context of divorce. Now, there are probably people here who have been divorced. My parents were divorced when I was 16. My wife's parents were divorced when she was about 11 or 12. So we both come from broken homes that way. Fortunately, in both of our cases, the divorces were amicable, so my mom and dad were still friends after their divorce. Neither one remarried. My wife's family, uh, her father did remarry, and she had a stepmom for many years, but that relationship was still somewhat amicable as, as much as could be expected. Now, many of us have, have seen very bitter divorces that are very uh, ugly, even violent, and sometimes it, it has a, a really bad ending, especially when kids are involved, which we understand from human behavior. But in this context, Jesus was asked about this. And he said, this is not the way it was meant to be. He said, Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your heart, but it's not so in the beginning. Have you not read how God made them, created them, male and female, and the two come together as a husband and wife and become one flesh? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's this text quoted for a self-justification by the religious leaders against Jesus, that Jesus takes this text back to Genesis chapter 2 to explain God's ideal plan for marriage. Now, we could easily get into a whole study tonight on marriage, but as we're going verse by verse, that's not our objective, but we do want to teach this passage in its context. So we're going to talk about some things here. So the man and the woman were brought together, Adam and Eve, two literal historical people. They're in the garden made in God's image and brought together by the Lord. A young earth, they're together without sin, no death in the universe, no death on planet earth. And they had a beautiful relationship. In fact, we're told they were both naked and unashamed. But of course, sin did enter and they chose sin and rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. And thus, this idyllic marriage that was in place that God oversaw has now come under the curse of sin. And we're all under the curse of sin, of course. This was our study in great detail topically recently. But 
as we go forward, we know when we're getting married, you've got two people coming together, a man and a woman. Of course, it's a man or a woman. That's the only marriage structure God will ever identify or accept in his kingdom. He'll never accept marriage being a man and a man or a woman and a woman. That's just absolutely ludicrous. So just forget that right now. And not only that, we know that the man and the woman being married is an example of Christ and his love for the church, and that's a beautiful thing. So when you put woman to woman or man to man, you skew the beauty of marriage that God designed from the beginning, and you train wreck it, which is exactly what the devil wants to do. Also, we know that God loves marriage, and we're told that he hates divorce. We're told that in the book of Malachi because it affects the children of the next generation. And so we know that God has given the natural love and the natural affection of a man for a woman to each other to come together in a covenant relationship to ideally be under the Lord, to ideally be living by faith and growing together in their journey when it's fruitful and goes that way, which rarely it does, but when it does, it's a beautiful thing, and the family unit is preserved. So in this universe, God uses a healthy marriage to establish a healthy family unit, and thus it reproduces itself from generation to generation. And so when you come from broken families, you're much more likely to reproduce a broken family than if you come from a healthy family where the parents were together the whole time. And statistics prove that clearly, and we don't even need the statistics to prove that. We know that would be harmonious with God's word and most likely, not most likely, what absolutely is what he honors. And so we we see this situation that the, the man and the woman is God's design for marriage, but we have a sinful nature, But this is the family unit, and where societies have this family unit maintained and esteemed, especially under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when there's two believers, they give the world a model of Christ and his love for the church, and the church under Christ, as Ephesians 5 says, and you have this beautiful thing. So we don't have this ideal around the world, but in the body of Christ, we can have this ideal. And then without Christ, you can still have this ideal with the family unit by God's universal design for humanity on planet Earth. This is the plan. Now, in this context of this covenant with Israel, again, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, well, can a man divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus said, it's not so, but it's because of the hardness of your heart. And so it's the background of hardness of heart that we understand their sin. And Scripture interprets Scripture, so we see some very interesting things here. Uh, first of all, we're told in this context that the man who divorces his wife can only divorce her when he finds uncleanness in her. So we must define, what is this uncleanness? Because the rabbinical writings of the time of Christ showed that the priests would put away their wife for uncleanness as a bad breakfast. So they had a very liberal view as it applied to them not wanting to remain married in their marriage covenants with women, which people like that do. But Jesus defines for us what the uncleanness is. Because he tells us the only basis to even permit divorce is for sexual immorality. So that's the uncleanness. So ladies, the only uncleanness that God gives for a man to put away his wife, it's not a physical uncleanness from any disease or unfortunate. That's always saying sickness and health, by the way, when you get married. It's not the uncleanness of any other thing that you could think of being unclean physically or whatever or interpreted by men who are self-centered and all about them, it can only be understood by Jesus Christ himself that the uncleanness spoken of here in Deuteronomy 24 is sexual immorality by the wife against her husband, which her heart is hardened to commit adultery against her husband, and his heart might be hard not to forgive her, not to take her back from that adultery. 
So that's why Jesus said, we're never commanded to divorce. You know that, right? Divorce is never, there's no instance where divorce is commanded. It's permitted because of the hardness of heart. And there is cause and effects and consequences with adultery. And so when there's been adultery, someone might forgive and be restored and the marriage can be saved, but maybe not. But it's a foundation. It's a basis for divorce. Of course, we know also in 1 Corinthians 7 that when a non-believer doesn't want to be with a believer and leaves them, there's a point where the believer is released from that marriage because they're not willing to live with them and be with them. So that's an additional aspect that Scripture gives us for a basis of divorce. But divorce is so final in God's eyes, and I think in our society it becomes not as final. And divorce is very final. Of all things, when I watched my mom go through divorce, it was it just crushed her and tore her up. It was very, it's the hardest thing I've ever seen my mom go through was the divorce of my mom and dad. And even our own family, it's still not really clear who initiated the divorce, my mom or my dad. But it was very difficult. Divorce is not meant to be easy. And let me just tell you from my experiences as a pastor in 33 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of divorce. And I have concluded there's three types of divorce that I've seen. So let me share with you the wisdom that I've gained firsthand in ministry. The first type of divorce is a quick divorce. Usually young people get married and realize they can't live together at all. It's usually reflective of immaturity, but it's a quick divorce. Sometimes as people have been widowed or widower or widowee, and, and they go into a relationship quickly, and they, re, they, they wanted that companionship, and you realize quickly it was, a, it was a mistake, and you see people get divorced quickly in that situation as well. It's usually a one- to two- or three-year marriage where there's a quick divorce, and I've seen it many, many times, where it's just two people saying, like, this was a huge mistake, and we can't do this. The other divorce, the second one you see, is usually around 10 years plus, and usually this is how you're blended families, because usually you have a couple people who had young children together, and they decide that the grass is green or somewhere else. So the first divorce is usually because we just cannot live together. This was a huge mistake. It's not even, it has no north like a compass. It's just a train wreck, and it's just done. That second divorce is usually comes when people have been married about 10 to 12, 15 years, and they decide they just can't. They don't like this person and think they can find a better version of this person or someone else that they do better with. Thus, so often, as divorce increased in our society in the last 60 years, we have so many of these blended families where you bring, you know, we grew up with the Brady Bunch, you older people, and that was the original blended family that we saw on TV. And the grass is greener. We've made mistakes in our first marriage. We can figure this out. We'll have a second marriage. That's a, a divorce that I've seen many times. But the third divorce was the one I didn't really know much about until I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. And that was the divorce of people who had been married 20 to 30 plus years who got divorced after their kids were all adults and left, left, grew up and left the house. And they're suddenly, they're empty nesters. And the marriage stayed together and was built around the kids, around their sports and their dance school and all these things and their education. And then once the kids are gone, they haven't nurtured their relationship, and now it's two strangers who've been married for 25, 30 years, and the catalyst was the children, and the children are gone. And now they have to re reboot and reestablish that relationship, and you see that. 
I was stunned when I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa in the early 2000s when so many of those young hippies had grown up and had kids, and when the kids had left, that they didn't love each other. And I couldn't understand, like, you're already in the third quarter. Like, why would you quit now? Like, it's like a marathon, and you're in mile 17. Like, why, why would you quit? But there's people that get divorced when they're 80. And you think, well, it's a marathon, and now you're just like, you're coming back up PCH, and you're like a mile north of the pier, and the finish line's right here. Like, you're right there by you know, Pacific City, and, but it happens. But what I found with the third divorce is, the first divorce is just, it was a bad decision. The second divorce is, there's something better for me. The third divorce is, I just don't want to live with you. That's what I found with that divorce. Oh, I don't, I'm not looking for someone else. I just don't want to live with you. And that's that third divorce. So you never really arrive where you're not potential to be divorced. When I've done weddings for so many years, we tell people when they come forward, and Jack McEwen's getting married in a couple weeks, and some of you, I did your wedding ceremonies here, and we say, hey, there's the, the groom and the bride, and the Lord's at the top, and it's like a triangle. The closer you get to the Lord, the closer you'll get to each other, but the farther you get from the Lord, the farther you'll get from each other. So as long as two people are living by faith, individually, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, they will get closer and closer together, and their marriage will go through the wonderful seasons that God has for a marriage. They'll be growing together. But as we know, it only takes one person not to live by faith to regress the triangle and pull apart and go this way. That's what I've learned. I've been married 33 years. That's what I've learned. And I've been close to di- divorce central being in ministry. 33 years. And one other thing, you probably never figured this out or never thought of this, or maybe you had, but let me tell you, when people are falling apart in a marriage, usually they want to leverage the minister against the other one. They want to leverage a pastor against the other one. The rookie mistake all pastors make is to get pulled into a marital problem, a marital conflict, and be leveraged by one of the people in the marriage against the other one. So that person leaving that person can justify it, saying, well, they represent God. God's on my side, not on yours. I'm leaving you. That's how that works. Now, in this case, the uncleanness is absolutely sexual immorality only. And when the divorce took place, you had to hand them their certificate of divorce. You know, people drop off a certificate of divorce. They have lawyers drop it off or an agency or somebody like that. There's something powerful, I would think, when you hand someone their certificate of divorce. How you have to be at that place to do that, to look someone in the eyes and hand them their certificate of divorce. That's very powerful. We don't like confrontation. I don't know what's more confrontational than handing someone who you said you'd love forever, or they said to you, and they hand you or you hand them a certificate of divorce. There's something so powerful in that exchange. And even in this culture, it was legally binding. There's a certificate. So it's not like a little note like, you, you wrote a note at Denny's at 2 in the morning and said, you know, I don't love you anymore. Here's, I'm divorcing you. No, you had to get a lawyer or you had to go online and download the document. Do this and then hand it to him. So it's legal, it's binding, and it's personal. See, you would, to get to that point, you would have checked yourself a lot of times. Like this is the, the final. And what's also interesting about this is there's no going back. God wanted divorce to be absolutely final not wishy-washy, 
So then when the woman leaves, and it could be a man, we'll come back to that before I close on this point. It could be a man, but the divorce is final. So you let her go. You gave her a certificate of divorce. You didn't forgive her. You forgave her. You didn't, rec- you didn't, re- you didn't receive her back as your wife because you could have forgiven her. You can forgive without being required to stay married to that person in the case of that uncleanness. Let's be clear about that. So she left. She marries this guy you knew from high school, whatever. She's with him. You're like, whatever. That's your deal. And that's how that goes. But then he dies or he leaves her. And I was like, oh, take me back. You can't take her back in the law. God says it's an abomination. He puts it the same place with homosexual and lesbian relationships and sex with dogs. Abomination's not used that often. It's, abomination is a very strong term. It defiles the land, he says. So you need to know when you give that certificate of divorce, it is not only legal, it is final. That's it. And when you've moved on to the second marriage, you need to know you're not going back to the first marriage. Your, your high school boyfriend, he's not an option anymore. The guy you fell in love with college, he's not an option anymore. That girl, she's not an option anymore. That's done. It's over. The time to reconcile was before people remarried. Not under this circumstance. In the law, right here. And, of course, Jesus interprets this for us. So it was hardness of heart. Now, Jesus also tells us, if a woman divorces her husband, in Mark 10... So ladies, we do know when Jesus says that, contextually, there was a place for women to divorce their husbands for the same thing because the uncleanness is sexual immorality. So the only basis for divorce biblically is sexual immorality. New Testament tells us that non-believer leaves you, then you're released from the marriage. Just make sure you don't drive them away to justify it because we always justify ourselves. I do. And so do you, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. Those are the only two reasons. It's not meant to be something flippant, but something very serious, and it's gut-wrenching. Charles Spurgeon said almost 150 years ago concerning divorce, it's like having your legs severed. And it's not at all like leaving your re- abandoning your regiment, like in war. It's so much more far-reaching, which, of course, in these previous generations, leaving your regiment was the worst thing you could ever do in war. It's just so debilitating, and it is. So if you've been divorced, my heart goes out to you, and we can't go back and change what was and whatever. We can only go forward with what is. So the point of, well, we're going verse by verse, so I'm just teaching God's word. So the point is to be forgiven by the Lord if you have to be forgiven, to be comforted by the Lord if you need to be comforted, and to understand God's law, his word as it applies. And this is more moral law for human beings than it is for the context of the civil law for the people of Israel. And it's very strong. So that's the shortest version I can do on that one too. There, there, there is a lot there, but uh, there's no going back. It's for this reason, and the woman can leave the man as well. Marriage is a serious thing. <laughs> I had my son-in-law, Nathan, uh, Nathan Gallagher, ask me just yesterday because he had one of the young people in the youth group come up to him and go like, so hey man, how how do we know premarital sex is wrong? Good question. He's like, so Joey, what would you say? I said, well, we just read Deuteronomy and it said a couple chapters ago, you sleep with her, you keep her. If you be sleeping, you be keeping. That's what it said. He said, where's that verse? I'm like, it's right there in Deuteronomy, right? 
The other ones you get stoned for or hung for, but that one's like, no, you, 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 you. He's like, oh, that's so good. Thank you. I'm like, yeah, because it's serious. Marriage is sacred and honorable. And look how we've, de- how it's just become, ah, again, I hate to always blame my timeline from 60 to 2020, 1960 to 2020, but the demise of the American family unit and, and marriage itself and the esteem of marriage has been just completely obliterated and destroyed in this country during my timeline. But as we keep saying over and over, what other people do is their choice. What we do is ours. If the whole world's going to hell, we're still the narrow gate. And we choose to live by faith individually. We choose to live by faith in our marriage. We choose to die to ourselves and love our wives like Christ loves the church. And we choose to die to ourselves and submit to our husbands as unto the Lord. That's what we choose to do. And in there is the great blessing. This is the main text for the night. So, And then in verse 5 where it says, the first year that you can please your wife... This is wonderful because God realized men are busy. Men always want to fight somebody and they always want to build something. When a man has a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. Men want to fight and build. And sons of Adam for thousands of years on planet Earth is nothing more than a cycle of fight, build, fight, build, fight, build, fight, build. So what sons of Adam need to figure out is how to love, how to slow down, love, and serve. Slow down, love and serve. So that's why that first year of marriage is so important that the husband learns to read his wife, understand his wife, the nuances of her countenance, the noises she makes, the things that she does, to be there to love her and serve her and and to lead her in the kingdom that first year. And God puts a premium on it. We, We just read it. The second year is not the same as the first year. The first year is the foundation. The first year is the foundation. We always tell young people, and you older people, as you see young people getting married, never be afraid to go, hey, you know that first year is really important. Treasure it. Because it's harmful to a marriage to start a marriage where the guy's got a whole new business plan or he's got some beef going on with this lawsuit from this former partner or whatever. Those are the worst things you can bring into the first year of a marriage. Bring peace love, humility, servanthood, empathy, and the ability to listen. And that's presuming the natural love and affections and passions are there. So really learning to love your wife. It doesn't say the woman is exempt from things in the first year of marriage. God, God it would seem to imply that the women are ready for the first year of marriage. It's the guys that need to slow down, quit fighting everybody, and quit trying to build everything. Just focus on your wife and learn to love her. If you get that first year right, I would think the chances are very high that the rest of them all go well. And who knows how many years you have. Verse 6. Now we get to a cluster of these passages now that are very much civil law, and they sound like the book of Proverbs. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in a pledge, for he takes one's living in a pledge. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren, of the children of Israel, and mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe to do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, just as I command you, you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when she came out of Egypt? So remember, Miriam got the leprosy because she rebelled against Moses, her brother. Now, so three things here. 
No man shall take uh, uh, other man's millstone. So if anyone ever owes you anything, you can't take their livelihood. If someone owes you money, they, you can't take their work truck. You can't take their tools that they left in the back of your truck because that's how they work. That's how they make a living. So you can't take their tools. Even if you're like, hey, no one burns me in the, on the construction job like this. I've got his tools. I've got everything. Okay, give him back his tools, and then if you want to go to small claims court, go to small claims court, whatever, however you feel led in your case. But you don't take his tools. You don't take her tools. You don't take someone's means. If a guy makes a living making surfboards and he ripped you off, you don't take his shaping tool, you know? You don't take his planer because that's how he makes a living. It's important. God said you got to respect someone's, you can't take someone's ability to make a living. You can't take their tools by which they make a living. Then if you're found kidnapping, this is, uh, this is human trafficking. Did you catch that? That's what this would be right now. This is human trafficking. Taking people, kidnapping them, against their will, selling them to someone else. That's human trafficking. You know what the law says about human traffickers? You ready? Hang them. Hang them. Curses everyone hangs from a tree. You steal someone's 10-year-old in another country, and you displace them like the Assyrians did? The law says, hang them. Hang them. This is so serious. You are taking someone's life from them when you take their freedom from them, and you're causing great sorrow and heartache to all the people who love that person. God's law says, hang them. And I admire those people, like Victor Marx, who go out around the world, and they rescue people who have been lost in human trafficking. People conquer people all the time, usually nations, nations, but now it's criminals and their networks of all their human trafficking, including even here in Southern California. This is God's law. You kidnap someone, you get caught, you get executed. You can go home and decide if you think that's appropriate. But this isn't moral law. This is civil law. This is government for their people in their time. And God's the same they're saying forever. I'm not Judge Judy. I'm not the judge of San Ana Supreme Court. But this says what it says. And let God be true and every man a liar. And then it comes to take heed to leprosy. Okay, we already studied leprosy. So when there's a plague, a pandemic... You don't isolate the healthy people. You isolate the sick people. That's what the Word of God teaches. You don't take healthy people and lock them in place. You take the sick people and you quarantine them. That's what you do. That's God's law according to Leviticus, which we already read. So in affirming it here, he's simply saying, remember what I told you in Leviticus? You take the people that are known to be sick and you quarantine them. But you don't quarantine a whole society. You quarantine the sick people. That's what you do. There's nothing new under the sun in the human experience. Verse 10. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to take his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that you may sleep. When the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wage and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you and to the Lord and it be sent to you. So if you lend somebody something and it's in their house, you got to let it go. You just got to let it go and let the Lord deal with it. With a poor man, so you think of a homeless person, if you take a homeless person's blanket and their stuff in their grocery cart as a pledge, you need to give it back to them before the sun goes down because that's how they stay warm. 
God puts a value on the basic human dignity for a person to sleep and be warm and clothed when they sleep. That's what this says. That's the heart of the Lord. It says also in verse 14, you should not oppress a hired servant. So you pick someone up at Home Depot looking for a job and you get them to do the job. You pay them when the job is done that day. You don't tell them to come back tomorrow. When you get them and you hire them, you pay them on that day for what they did. You don't hire people to do things that you can't pay them. So don't deceive a contractor and sign a contract that you can't keep. I don't know one person that's a contractor that hasn't been burned badly by somebody at some point in time. You hire them, you pay them. It's that simple. Now, if they get off the track and they go way over budget and they don't stick to their deal, that's why you have a contract. Okay? But we all know people who say, they're going, yeah, do this, yeah, I'll pay you for that, and they don't do it. Don't be that person. You want, to always, you want to always pay restitution for what you told people you would do for it. And it's in the law. It's right here. Verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not perverse justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do these things. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Therefore, I command you to do these things. So here's another cluster. These clusters, okay, so first of all, you never blame a parent for what the children do in this sense, particularly the context would seem adults, and you can't. So you can't, you can't, you can't make the, the parents of criminals. It could be indirectly their fault. It could be directly their fault. But if you're a poor parent and your grown-up son is a criminal, you still can't go to jail because he steals cars and hurts people and robs people. He goes to jail because he did that, not you. You'll stand before the Lord for how you failed to raise your child properly, but not before civic law that way. You know, and you just never know, too. Sometimes you do everything right, and the kids just choose to do everything wrong because God gives us all a choice, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. But you pray for your kids, you hope for the best. But you can't punish the dad. And if the dad's a criminal and evil, you can't punish the kids for that. That's not on the kids. You can't blame the kids for, for mom or dad being criminals. So the distinction that we all stand or fall in our own merit and our own decisions and our own actions, that's very important. Because in some societies, they don't uphold this. And the innocent are punished in the generational lines who are not the guilty party. So thank the Lord for his justice there. We don't pervert justice ever. We honor justice. Most of us aren't judges or in a place where we make final decisions. But if you are in any type of arbitration, those things like that, don't pervert justice. Just do what's right, and God will honor it. Then when you're, they're gleaning their fields, remember it's an agricultural society, that you take into mind the poor and you provide stuff for the poor, that there's stuff left for the poor. Always that concept and awareness that there's poor people in need. Jesus said the poor you'll always have with us. And so 
we get here that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And we've talked about this over and over in Deuteronomy, that we can't go wrong when we're generous and we're benevolent because the Lord will bless us. And if we do it as unto the Lord and we love humanity the way the Lord loves humanity, we can't go wrong. The Lord's going to take care of us. And he wanted them to understand this in their agricultural society, to understand this. Like, hey, leave some olives on the trees. You already got everything you need. You got all that you need. It's, it's almost like a good way of paying taxes, like volunteer taxes, because this will provide for people who are less fortunate than you, and it's just, and it's your choice. Just be generous, and know that the earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. Someday you're going to go into eternity and leave the olive trees behind, the vineyard behind, the grapes, all of it, the fig trees, you're going to leave behind. So God's given it to you, you're blessed, harvest your stuff, take it to the market, build your wealth, your portfolio, take care of your children, your children's children, but leave, leave some for the others. Because in the end, it all came from the Lord, and you're just a tool and a vessel and a conduit of the Lord. Chapter 25, there's a dispute between men, and they come to court that the judge may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these. Your brother be humiliated in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This is public punishment. There's, if you study the Wild West, when the West was opening up, you study colonial era, there was definitely public beatings for crimes, and they were a restraint on people. There's, there's, there's not a lot of restraint on criminals and criminal activity right now, this time that we live in. My relative who serves in the police department, he told me that when he writes things, like they, they've let... They've caught people with stolen cars, and they let them go. They just take the car back. Like, I can't imagine that in 1970, growing up in Carlsbad. If I had stolen someone's car, they're going to let me go and just take the car back. But that's what we become. And he said that he didn't even, like, in so many cases, they don't even write the, the violation to go to court because they don't go to court. The criminals don't show up, and then they got to go to court. The cops who wrote the thing, and it takes their time to do it, and then they're not there. Now, this is a first-hand report from my immediate relative serving in law enforcement in Southern California. He's been repeatedly beat up as a cop. Three times he's been radically assaulted. And I guess they have the code. You guys would know the code when a cop's being assaulted. Three times in less than a year. Three times. And he's gone a number of times when other cops are being assaulted where he's had to go there and be a part of a big brawl to rescue a cop who's being assaulted by criminals. Man, if you took these criminals and you beat them publicly with 39 blows, I don't think the cops would be taking blows who are there to protect and to serve. It'd be the criminals, and it'd be restraint against evil in a society. This is God's word for a civil society. It's not my job to enforce it, but it is my job to read it to you and give you its proper context. Paul the Apostle was beat five times with 39 lashes. So if you're going to get a public beating, let it be for Jesus' name. Amen? Yeah. 39 times, 39 beating, 39 lashes, five times for the gospel. Now that's a public beating that has reward in eternity. The criminal public beating doesn't. I've been beat a couple times 
both times, I totally deserved it. I to- the fact that I didn't get beat up more than I did is rather amazing. Randy Crosco knew me from my surfing past. Like, Joey, that you ever went to Hawaii and did all you did and no one ever gave you donuts is one of the greatest miracles right there next to you winning the fight masters. I got chased out of the water. I hid in the bushes at Sunset Point. You know, I avoided Polynesian route at its peak and was able to stay away from it, you know, until it calmed down from locals. But the two times I really had someone give me some donuts, I can say without a doubt, I deserved it thoroughly both times. And it changed my behavior. It modified my behavior. One was a public beating in the parking lot at Mission Bay. And the other one was a public beating from the Pro Tour in South Africa when Ian Cairns gave me some. I dropped it on. He's just wailed on me right in front of the whole Pro Tour. And everyone thought that was pretty funny particularly Bud Lamas, who runs 17th Street Surf Shop. And I said, hey, Joey, you got beat up by Ian. <laughs> I had it coming. No one felt sorry for Joey Brown getting beat up by Ian Cairns. The, the good thing of the story is we became best friends. I did his wedding ceremony, and we're great friends. And he'll still tell me what I need to hear to this day. He's a true friend. Had it coming. I'm just saying, don't underestimate the public beating. There's a place for it in the human experience. For guys like me. <laughs> All right, we read on. Ye shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This verse is quoted in the New Testament twice. Paul the Apostle cites this verse as a reason why the, those who labor for the gospel earn an income from the gospel. And since I'm blessed, there's no need for me to elaborate on that. It simply is the principle that if the animal's grinding it, then you've got to let the animal eat what it's doing the work. And if you're doing ministry and there's an income from it, then good for you if that's what God has. The principle is you don't make someone work and not reward them while they're doing the work. And if it's true for an ox, it's definitely true for a human being. Because Paul said, is God in Deuteronomy 25.4 worried about an oxen or about a human being? So the lesson of the oxen is the lesson for a human being. Verse 5 says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her intimately and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed in the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him but if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Again, this is civil law for Israel, because remember, they all had inheritances through the genealogies of their tribe. So this, this is very contextual to the nation of Israel and the covenant they had. This is the passage the Sadducees come to Jesus with and say, well, you know, if there's really a resurrection, and whose wife is she in eternity? And Jesus said, you don't even know the scriptures. You're totally ignorant of the scriptures. And they're neither married nor given in marriage in heaven, but are like the angels. So it's this passage twisted out of context by the Sadducees to attack Jesus, that he puts them in their place, and makes that statement that most of us here are familiar with tonight. Also in the book of Ruth, we see the kinsman redeemer were Ruth and Boaz, and we know that Boaz does 
the, the immediate kinsman redeemer who would fulfill principles like this chose not to do it, and Boaz chose to do it. So we see at least one historical record of this in the Old Testament where something like this sort of played out. But it's an unusual law, and if you think, wow, that's unusual, I think so too. But it's there. But the idea is that you're looking out for someone else. Again, you're looking out for them and giving them a posterity so the estate stays in the family and it goes the way it's supposed to go. That's what you're doing. And it's in the end, it's thinking of others, which is something we understand because Jesus is all about others. Verse 11. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts her hand out and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand and your eyes shall not pity her. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So here are a couple of miscellaneous laws again. So the whole idea of the, man, the two men are fighting, and I, I really... You can read a lot about this online from commentaries, but personally, I feel like this breaks the order that God has because God is the head of Christ, the Father. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. And we see that throughout the scriptures, particularly in Corinthians, but the, the man is head of the woman, but the man comes through the woman. You know the passage I'm talking about. And there's neither male nor female in Christ, but they're both one, yet Christ is the, the head of the church, even as a husband is the head of the bride. And so I think personally contextually what this is really saying about the woman grabbing the other man's genitals is you never go there. It's out of order for the design God has for the role of men and women. And it's a disgraceful and dishonorable thing to do. In some cases, it'd be a natural thing to do in defense of your man. But I was thinking about this. Being alive for 60 years, there's very few women that I could think of who would do this. But the women that I can think of who would do this, you would never want to marry them. And you know that girl. You guys are older. You know which woman this is who would do this. You would never want to marry her. You would not want her to be your wife doing this on your behalf. And God help you if that's the woman you married and she does that. Because the woman that would do this is unrestrained. And this is probably the woman who's done something unclean and you put her away or you forgave her and stayed with her. You understand? Most of you women in this church right now wouldn't even think to do something like this. Even as it talks about the women having coverings in the Corinthian culture, right? It's like there, there's, there's things that, you know, like the angels, the order, you know, the four living creatures, it all goes together. You never do this. So don't. If you say we're not under the law, I'll just tell you, ladies, I would never do this. No one's going to cut your hand off, but I think you cross a line as a woman, a woman of God in your femininity, before the Lord, I think you cross the line if you did something like this. And that's just the way it is. And think of all the harlotrous women in America right now who are so loud and pompous and vile and vulgar and crude and pornographic. So lustful without shame. I wonder how they'd be if someone cut their hands off. There is a place and an order for a man and a woman under God in his universe. And when we're headed in eternity, it's going to be the way he intended it to be. It's not going to be like what you see out here. 
It's so vile and vulgar, our society and our culture. This is what happens when you remove the ancient boundaries and you just do what you want to do. Now, the unjust weight, people would have a weight that appeared, they say, oh, it weighs this much, but it wasn't that weight. It was purposely deceitful. So I would just tell us on this one, like a book of Proverbs, don't do things that are purposely deceitful. Don't do things that are purposely deceitful to take advantage of other people. That's what that's saying. Because it's unrighteousness. We want to be transparent in how we carry ourselves in business and how we carry ourselves in human relationships. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you're coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So there is a consequence from the Lord on Amalek, for the Amalekites, for what they did. Now, when the Jews came out of Egypt and they were in their wilderness wandering, the Amalekites attacked the mixed multitude and the vulnerable on the rear guard of the multitude as they are going through the wilderness. And they, so they took advantage of those who are vulnerable, is what they did. That's a story where Joshua is introduced to us, where he fights them, and Moses is holding up the rod, interceding, and Aaron and Hur are holding his arm up while he's interceding, and Israel prevailed. But it was against Amalek, the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the perpetual enemies of Israel and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Herod the Great is a descendant of Amalekites who tried to kill Israel. Jesus, the child in Bethlehem. And if you go reverse engineer that back to the Amalekites at the time when they left the wilderness, when the Jews came into the wilderness 1,500 years before this, Haman, in the book of Ruth, excuse me, in the book of Esther, Haman, who wanted the Jews wiped out, he was an Amalekite. When Saul, the first king of Israel, was rejected by God, the flashpoint of his rejection was when he refused to wipe out Amalek, particularly King Agag. That's what cost him his throne. He refused to obey in a difficult thing. See, some things we can never have peace with. We cannot have a kumbaya moment with certain people and certain things because they will destroy us and they're so contrary to the kingdom of God in our life and the call of God in our life, we just cannot be there. It's so toxic that you don't even, it'll destroy us. Do you realize that you can't just not be at war? There are some things you're perpetually at war with. And we are perpetually at war with the devil and the principalities and powers of his kingdom. And their, their attack against us, Jesus, the gospel, and the coming kingdom. And there's no way to sign a peace accord on that. We're in a spiritual battle. And so what is light, we stand for what is light. What is darkness, stands for what is darkness. And the light shines against the darkness, and the darkness does not come to the light. So we don't wipe out Amalekites in our timeline, in our covenant, but don't be surprised if Amalekites want to wipe us out. But in the end, the Lord's our protection. The Lord's a provider, and our life is in his hands, and our calling is in his hands. So we fear no evil. But just know when the world wants to come together on the lowest denominator, and that's what they had in mind at the Tower of Babel in a post-flood world, 
and that's how they're going to end up in a pre-millennial reign judgment with the judgment of Christ upon the world is a Babylon, mystery Babylon. They're going to they're unify on all the things that God has distinction on. We've been talking about this. So we're never going to have peace with the Amalekites, body of Christ, who they really are now, the spiritual powers and principalities and powers and those ideologies and philosophies that war against Christ and the freedoms that the gospel brings to individual human beings in the human experience. We just can't surrender those things. We can never surrender to Amalek under any circumstance. We have to stand. If they come and take all of our stuff, like David, we got to go after them and get it back. And like David, we have to trust that God will preserve it. Some things you just cannot... I've been, really, I've been thinking a lot about this closing thought at 60. There's a long war against God, and it's unavoidable when you stand for Christ. And it is what it is. So, having done all, stand, and that's what we need to do.